Belt Law, Society, Scholarship, and Fandom. Welcome to Semantic Shenanigans. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode number 14 of Semantic Shenanigans. As always, I am Janet Gershon-Siegel, and joining me from inside a meat locker where she's warming up is my co-host, <laughs> Shannon Gilkison. Hey, and you know what? There's so much white on the ground, I can't see corn anymore. <laughs> oh my god, the corn <laughs> has dandruff. What the hell happened there? It, it always comes back to the corn, doesn't it? It, it? You know, all roads lead to the corn, apparently. <laughs> I saw that movie. It didn't end well for anybody. <laughs> but there was a sequel, right? Uh, yeah, so it, so so we got up this morning. It was like five above here. How about there? Um, it was three when I woke up this morning. So I, I shudder to think of what it did overnight. It was like probably minus something something. Um, I, I've been <laughs> avoiding going out. Um, I had to today because, you know, groceries. Uh but yeah, I, I just I, I haven't been wanting to deal with the outside at all. Like I, I, I haven't even checked the mailbox in three days. I'm gonna begrudgingly go out there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to go out uh, to uh, get my hair my haircut tomorrow, and I yeah, it's it's just gonna be like you know styled for about five seconds, and then the hat goes back on. Right. Well, you know, at least uh, you know if you get it blown out straight, then the hat won't matter as much. <laughs> spray spray some static guard in there before you go to the salon. <laughs> yes. No, but, I'm serious. But, <laughs> you know, I'm a retired hairdresser, right? So you no, spray no, the I, static, I know that. So spray the static guard in your hat and spray the static guard in your brushes, and then you won't get like the crazy hat hair so much. And, and try to avoid like if you use styling products, try to avoid anything that's sticky like gel. Or, or, mm -hmm. or mousse, because like that'll react with your body heat and kind of like mash that impression of, of the hat into your hair. You use cream-based products. See, see, this is this is an educational program. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm just imagining my husband, you know, coming over to me, you know, later on tomorrow and saying, "What's that cologne you're wearing? It's Static Guard, honey." <laughs> <laughs> it's That's driving hot. me wild. <laughs> That's hot. <laughs> God, and it, we, we do have to maintain a rating here, folks. <laughs> On that I, happy I'm note. Oh, I'm sorry, what? On that happy note. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm drinking wine for this show, so rating schmating, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we, we still have champagne downstairs. Maybe I'll, uh, yeah, maybe I'll ask him to, uh, to, get, me, uh, to get me a glass. <laughs> this will be really interesting. So, um, so what's been going on in your life? So last time, um, I think I had just finished taking my prelim exams, uh, which if, if you are unfamiliar with graduate school, particularly PhD programs, uh, for my program, it's, it's kind of like the essay test from hell. You have, you know, seven to eight days to write, uh, four papers, basically four, essays, research papers, that kind of thing, to kind of show your your dissertation committee that you basically know what you're talking about and that you're ready to get in and start a dissertation that you, you've paid attention in class, that you know 
the fundamentals of your discipline and you know uh, about your specialty. So I passed. In fact, I got high passes on most things. And then, you know, the, the way it works, you get like the options of high pass, pass, marginal pass, which is the skin of your teeth kind of thing. And then you, you fail, right? So um, I got mostly high passes and a couple of passes. So I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was certainly a better outcome than I hoped for. So uh, we go through after that what they call the uh, the oral defense. So basically, I have to like stare down my committee uh, while they ask me uh, clarifying questions um, about the things that I wrote, um, you know, and, and ask me about some of my choices and that kind of thing. But since I did well, I'm kind of not sweating it. it it's not going to be, um, you know, the, the dragnet thing like, oh, no, not the light, right? Because that's what it kind of sounds like when you <laughs> call it a defense. Um, but it's it's going to be probably more like a two hour two hour long conversation, and uh, two of my three committee members really like Star Wars, which is what my dissertation is going to involve. So um, I don't know, maybe it'll be a really fun geek fest. <laughs> you never know. But hey, congratulations! So yay, yay, yay! Well, thank you. So you know, um, I've been kind of just trying to take the winter break easy, but I only have about a week left before Bowling Green starts up again. So, you know, I've got all this course prep stuff to do, uh, syllabi to make, and all that kind of stuff. But um, in there, I did get to go see uh, uh, the Last Jedi a couple times. In fact, uh, uh, some friends and colleagues uh, and I went up to Ann Arbor, in Michigan, to like the really big IMAX theater up there to see it in 3D on the anniversary of Carrie Fisher's death. So, you know, we, we, we had the uh, pilgrimage to honor her and, um, and, and, Oh, I, I found the missing pants from last time. <laughs> wait, wait, where, what, where in the vortex were they? So, okay. When you're in grad school, um, you kind of choose certain areas of adulting to like let go of because you're so busy and so tired and so brain drained. So I have a couple of, let's say laundry baskets of things that I don't wear that often. So they just kind of like never made it back into the closet and somehow it, they ended up in there, but like out of the basket. So I think that I just kind of like threw them into the closet on the flourish while I was digging through those baskets looking for something else. So, so they migrated and, and then gravity did the rest. Yeah. And then they had to go and pack into back into the wash because, you know, they were clean at one point, but by the time the cats like are like, Oh, kitty bed. Um, you know, then, then I've got all this Sherman and squiggy hair all over that needs to come out. <laughs> it's a fashion statement. Ooh. Yeah. So yeah, no, no, no furry pants for me. That That's not a good, <laughs> that's not a good work look. So how about you? What have you been doing since, since we did this last time? Yeah. Since we did this last time. So I finished the, the original draft of metal, which was the, the, um, the NaNoWriMo, uh, novel. And that topped out at a little bit over 121,000 words. Uh, and God, that thing needs editing, but that will be <laughs> sometime later, uh, because you know, you know, it's it's always a good idea to leave it for a while because then you you go back and you got fresh eyes. It's easier to see where the problems are, and also you're not quite so committed and married to what you wrote, so you're you're more willing to uh, to change things and say, oh look, I didn't need this character. What the hell are they doing in there? Uh, but I will probably not be getting rid rid of any of the swearing in that. Uh, Yay. <laughs> 
it's it's um there's there's over 200 times the characters drop the f-bomb and they dropped a bunch of other bombs at least a good hundred times in addition to that and uh yeah but you know if the world was ending you probably would do <laughs> um my uh so so resolutions for this year i actually have writing resolutions and so what i want to try to do is write a lot more like um the late great Ray Bradbury did. And not to say that I'm at his level, because God knows I'm not, but it's more that uh, you sit down, butt in chair, fingers on keys, and you write something like a thousand to two thousand words per day. And, um, and what he said is that uh, you can't write uh, 52 bad short stories in a row. So somewhere in there, it's going to be something good. So that's hopeful. And uh, so, but I'm not going to be doing this all year. What I intend to do is sort of sort of switch off. So like the the um, the odd number of months, I want to do the writing, and the even number of months, I want to do everything that goes along with writing, which is the editing, the working with beta readers, the um, you know getting it polished, you know talking to cover artists, and you know and querying, getting it out there. So I I really want to try to. Uh, get more of this stuff out there because uh, Untrustworthy was published three years ago. And uh, the little things that I did for various charity anthologies are all about one to two years old as well. So, uh, you know, so I need to, you know, get something else out there. Um, the bathroom still isn't finished. What? <laughs> There's a medicine chest on the floor because uh, the the first medicine chest we purchased was not the correct type, and the return window had closed. So I have an extra medicine chest. If you need one, I have one. So are you going to Craigslist that thing then, or? I don't know. I think we're going to see if we can get it to fit into the upstairs bathroom. So that might turn out to be what happens to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so whatever. You know, maybe I'll ship it to my brother. Uh, but the handyman guy can't come because he's uh, in Haiti right now on vacation. Oh, uh, <laughs> but he'll be he'll be back uh, like in a couple of days. And we have had snow, but the at least the. Um, the driveway is finally clear and that's just in time for it to snow again on Thursday. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, the other thing is, so I'm, so I'm like, you know, trying to adult here sort of, and, uh, otherwise life's kind of quiet. Um, I've been, I had rewatched discovery in preparation for its return on the seventh. Yay. And, um, I found the missing top. Woo! Hooray for finding our clothes. <laughs> so, so it was located within. There's a. Um, I I have a bunch of chemicals and I keep them in a bag on uh, that that's hanging from a hook in my closet. And the reason why is because I don't have enough drawers. And so it's like you know, grab this. Okay, put this on, or you know, whatever. And um, for whatever reason, I decided that a T-shirt would be awfully awesome in this bag. And so it got thrown in there with a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm looking everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And my husband's looking everywhere. And we're, you know, like, did you put it in for goodwill? You know, it's sort of, we're having those conversations. And uh, so at least, so yay, it got found. And yes, it also needed to be rewashed because, you know, because life happens. But yes, we are, we're adulting. We're, we're succeeding at adulting. What a concept. Go us. <laughs> Go we're, us. We're, we're the good example now. Yeah, you know, let let 
Last month we were missing, we were losing our clothes. Now we've put them, <laughs> now we've got them back, and, and just in time for it to be freaking cold. I still haven't hung anything up yet, though. Just saying. <laughs> no, seriously. Like I, I've been doing this thing where I will even just dress out of the dryer because, like, I kind of know what's in there because I just washed it. And it's warm. It's warm. Right, and, and, and it makes the kind of, like, is it clean and does it match game a little bit easier. <laughs> so so similar outfits every, every you know, nine days or so. Well, you know, as a retired hairdresser, like, almost everything I own is black, right? So... <laughs> So, so it goes. It goes. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sometimes plagued by, do these blacks match? <laughs> <laughs> Which is so weird. You know, you would think that it's just, you know, it's black. It's the absence of color. That's all it should be. But I'll tell you, I am I am head to toe with black right now myself uh, because it's, you know, like the only, because I'm trying to absorb whatever sunlight I can. And uh, yeah, it's, I've, I've got these cargo pants and this um it's actually a top for um for long underwear and they don't quite go but i don't care but you know how you were talking about new year's resolutions and so um for academics those actually get made in august and and the academics in our posse will get that but that's because you know our year goes from you know august or september until april may right Mm -hmm. so that's when we make all these resolutions about okay i'm i'm gonna stay on top of my writing i'm gonna get into these conferences i'm gonna get these things out for journal publication and 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 i'm gonna stay on top of my grading and it it never happens right so so our resolutions are the same but i'm doing a normal one this year and uh when the yoga studio in town reopens tomorrow i am signing up for yoga because you know I, i used to do it i liked it i miss it I've gained some weight since grad school, and let me tell you, nothing makes you rethink what you're about to put into your mouth than knowing you are going to have to experience the discomfort of folding yourself over your own body later on that day. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear you, sister. I've, uh, I've been um, like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm up and down constantly, and I'm, and I've been on this current thing for over a year now. It's, it's sort of, it, it's medically supervised kind of deal, and uh, yeah, it, it, I'm forty pounds down from what I was, and the difference in your life is so amazing. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it's uh, speaking as you were of adulting. So I'm not even trying to treat this as a New Year's resolution because I I don't do that. And I notice that I tend to have more ambition in the summer months when I'm warmer and happier. Uh, But I have a a friend and colleague who said that he is considering signing up for yoga, too. So, you know, it it might be that that buddy thing, you know, if you... you think twice about not going if there's that other person who's going to think you're chomping them out. Yeah, you've got the accountability partner. Um, yeah, I have like nobody here <laughs> to, to do that with because my husband is like you know this little you know he's he's he's, he's a skinny skinny guy uh, because he he's he's always been uh, athletic. He's always been you know one of these people who would, like run everywhere and do stuff all the time. And he played um, ultimate frisbee a lot in um, in high school and then in college too. So, uh, yeah, and he'll run, you know, but it's been crappy out, so he hasn't. Too bad we can't Skype you into yoga. 
Yeah, I know. That would be nice. <laughs> and, and, and I, yeah, I, I did yoga. Oh my God. And I was a teenager though. I did it with my, with my father, which was kind of interesting. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, you know, hello, miss, you know, you know, whatever her name was. And, and, and this is my dad. So I got to call him Bernie while, uh, while we were in school, which was kind of. Oh, that's fun. So, um, so apart from all these, um, these, 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 uh, weather and, and health related, um, and, and New Year's kind of stuff, um, you want to, you want to get into show stuff? How about that? Yeah. So, um, since this is kind of, um, you know, an ethical thing, but also, well, it is an ethical thing, but there's going to be a lot of legal ramifications. So why don't you take this one away? Let's, let's talk about the updates to the sexual harassment list. Oh God! So that so so first off, I I had no idea what kind of a a, um, a task I was taking on when I started that damn thing because it's very long already, and I'm trying to find a way to limit it. So, for example, I didn't put in anybody who was um, who's known for being you know somebody within the religious field because particularly here in Boston, it would be a ton of catholic priests and stuff and so i didn't want to i didn't want to go down that road um but uh, the list continues uh and and it you know it's funny my husband keeps, keeps finding these uh these articles for me and sending them so you know a lot of women they get they get flowers from their their uh, their their significant others i get uh i i get uh you know links to urls about creepers <laughs> it's true love <laughs> Honey, I saw this and thought of you. Uh, so uh, NFL analysts Heath Evans and Marshall Falk have been added to our list, as has Miguel Sano, the third baseman for the Minnesota Twins, uh, and David Borian. Uh, is that how you say that? Uh, um, I don't know. I'm Team Spike. <laughs> okay, so uh, you know, I used to say uh, Borian Borians, but you know, there's an extra A in there, so I don't know what the what to do with it. Uh, the, the guy from the guy from Buffy, uh, and and other things, and from uh, and from Bones too. He uh, apparently he was doing some pretty nasty things uh, a few years ago. So it, it's very interesting. This is on the list now. You can see sort of the. Um, uh, this stuff is from a couple of years ago, and uh, the attitude from the people reporting is very different from the attitude of people reporting about almost the exact same stuff now, because it's more like, oh, it was kind of a ridiculous accusation, and it's sort of like the, this belittling of of the the victim. And so, the, so fortunately, things are are, are turning around, and, and you know, even even though yes, sometimes people are falsely accused. I think that there's there's more of a uh, that we're we're more inclined to initially uh, believe the victim these days as opposed to believing the, the the person being accused. The other bit of interesting news is that our first woman on the list has been added. Her name is Andrea Ramsey. She has uh, accusations of sexual harassment against her. Uh, she, uh, if she's not a household name, and she, she probably wouldn't be, she's a Democrat from Kansas, and she dropped out of her race for the United for the U.S. House because of uh, because of the allegations against her. So, uh, yeah, it's not just guys who do this. I mean, it, but it is overwhelmingly male. Uh, yeah. 
I, I just want to put this out there too. Um, you know, so in, in the interest, I mean, we are including women on the list in the interest of being egalitarian and fair. But what I want to make perfectly clear is that when men do it, they are supported by generations of systemic misogyny telling them that it's okay. All right. Women have no such social, uh, support for lack of a better word. Uh, for committing some pretty heinous, heinously ethical, ethically questionable, um, right on up to violations on, on men. So on the one hand, we are trying, we, we are acknowledging that yes, women do uh, commit these crimes and, and, and it's just as bad when they do it, but I want to make it abundantly clear that it is not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. And you know, one of the, the reasons also why we're not seeing as many women on this list is because one of the groups that I intentionally left out of this, and it was not to make women look better, I might add, but one of the groups that I intentionally left out of this, um, uh, of this list was teachers because we have seen uh, Pamela Smart, I believe is the name of one of, one of them, where these uh, teachers, usually younger women, but not always, uh, who uh, who would have relationships, quote unquote, with uh, teenage and sometimes even tween boys in their classes. Yeah, and, and you know, I want to add too, and this comes from my having minored in psychology as an undergrad, but one of the things that we learned there too is that when we're talking about um, minors, uh, it's, it's an issue of access. We, we, we've grown into the society where we, we think of sexual molestation and, and rape and, and all these awful things we, we tend to contextualize that as stranger danger but statistically stranger danger is negligible it, it does happen those are the stories that we remember but mostly it's people that we know and trust that commit these crimes and when, when we're talking about crimes against minors it's it's not the same thing as, as sexual harassment um it, Sexual harassment and, and, and sexual assault can can s seem kind of similar, but when, when you're talking about children, it is different. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and you know, it, 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 you know, and I've seen a number of people online, in particular, who've said, "Well, you know, he was willing, or you know, you know that the, that the minor was willing." Is whether this is a male or a female minor, I might add, or that uh, the uh, or that the adult couldn't tell that someone was underage well that's not that that's not a um that's not an excuse it's not a uh, it's not a defense uh you know this uh, what what we have in the united states is when you have when you have sex with a with a minor uh you know under the age of consent uh, because the age of consent very often turns out to be less than 18 but uh if if let's say if the age of consent is 16 and you have sex with a minor who is 15 years old then nobody cares whether any there was any consent at all and nobody cares whether there was any violence any any coercion any harassment or anything of the sort it is considered a um it's it's consider it's basically no fault it that uh if the birth certificate says that they're they're under 16 or whatever the age of consent is period end of story it's sexual abuse it is statutory rape there's there's no arguing it 
And, you know, that does bring up an interesting sticky problem that we talked about, um, particularly in my in, in the psychology of atypical sexuality class that I took a few years ago as an undergrad. And that's when you get the Romeo and Juliet situation. So a relationship that was okay yesterday can, in the eyes of the law, not be okay today simply because you've had a birthday. Yeah, it's it, it's a weird, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, we we do this and we, we draw a line because we have to draw a line someplace and there has to be a bright line so that so that uh, people know when, uh, you know, where the line is. And so that if they if they cross it or if they don't cross it, that they that they make those decisions intelligently. But yeah, the, where the line gets crossed often is kind of in an odd place. Yeah. And so, you know, some states, I think, have laws that kind of account for that. Like if both parties are in high school, it's still okay, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But other places do not. So it's not even a matter where you can just kind of go with, you know, what you think are common sense assumptions. You know, you, you really have to look into the law of your state and even your city or county. You know, it's uh, we've got this cruel joke, cruel joke as human beings, as homo sapiens, that we are, we become sexually mature or mature-ish at often an extraordinarily young age. And uh, our brains haven't caught up with that. Yeah. it's brains and it's our society. I mean, keep in mind too, like we, we part- since particularly since World War II, uh, but even, you know, since the beginning of the 20th century, adolescence is something that we've kind of grown protective of. Uh, if you look at Little House in the Prairie days, though, yeah, you were married off at 12 and 13 and you were expected to function as a, a man or as a woman at that age. So it isn't even just biological. Socially, we've changed quite a bit. Oh yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's uh, 150 years ago. You could be a widower at uh, at 15. Yeah, yeah, you know, and to think about that now—that's a trip. Yeah, it, it, you know, for, for for us now, obviously, this is, that's that's nuts. But uh, you know, for them, it was business as usual. Yeah, we are. Um, well, we we tend to give uh, give people a chance to have an adolescence because uh, there's more to learn, so education's more important, you need more of it. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, birth control, so we tend to have fewer children. So uh, extending their childhood is, is something that a lot of, a lot of people want to do. Uh, and um, we also have, uh, we have antibiotics, and we have all these reasons why people will live longer and are more likely to live and less likely to die in childbirth or, in, or within the first two years of their lives. So we don't need as many children. Most of us are off the farm, and we've got mechanization. So even through the people who are on the farm, they don't need 10 kids. Wow, this took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> but that's okay, you know, because because you learn stuff on our show, not just about uh, static queen, <laughs> right? <laughs> you are going to learn so much by the time this episode is over. I promise. <laughs> We are here for you. So, so, so anyway, the 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 list is ongoing. If you 
think of anybody else who I have missed, feel free to drop us a line. Uh, you can, which is uh, hosts, that's plural, at semanticshenanigans.com. Or you can just uh, toss a note onto our, uh, you know, you can tweet at us, which is to this number two shenanigans, or um, or, or uh, send us a note through Facebook or even through the uh, website. So please, please, if, if I'm missing somebody or if you think I've mischaracterized someone, please tell us. We want this to be right. And let me tell you, Janet has put a lot of work into this list. I mean, when she was saying that she wasn't sure how daunting this task would be, um, audience, I want to let, I want you to know that she has put a lot into this. And it's especially difficult in this current climate where we feel like every time we turn around somebody else is surfacing so um given that there's only so many hours in a day a lot of what's going to kind of keep our list good and current are tips from you so please if you have a tip by all means send it to us Yes, thank you, and, and thank you. I, I appreciate it. It's it, and, and my God, it's one depressing thing to read. So uh, here I am touting it, but it's a really depressing <laughs> thing to read. So uh, please, you know, if, if you're if you're at all mentally shaky, you know, if maybe maybe hold off. It, it's depressing, but it's necessary. Yeah, exactly. Because because these people should be uh, their feet should be put at the fire, and you know they should be held accountable. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, I I was going to move on because I'm depressed, but... uh, So was I. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this one's um, kind of bittersweet. So, on December 27th, it was the first anniversary of Carrie Fisher's death. Um, Star Wars fans know her as Princess Leia, later on General Leia. Uh, She was a well-respected writer, uh, script doctor around Hollywood, Um, but what she's kind of become really known for is what a loyal and vocal fandom she has cultivated, particularly on Twitter. And, you know, when, when a celebrity dies, there's that initial shock. People talk about it for a while. And then it's kind of that thing that only comes up once in a while. And, and often on anniversaries or on, on anniversaries with a number five at the end of them. Right. Well, in Carrie's case, though, nobody really seemed to stop grieving, especially if you're if you're tuned into her fandom on Twitter. Um, that the last year, I can't count how many tweets I've read uh, from fans who say how much they still miss Carrie, how much of a void uh, that she has left in their lives, and and so I, I started to give a lot of thought to what has made Carrie Fisher different. And true, she was part of something pretty iconic uh, in being with Star Wars. But I think that what we have to thank for the, the indelible mark that she's left on us is the fact that she was always so so open and so giving of herself, especially when it came to things that people would perceive as weaknesses like mental illness and like the fact that she struggled with drug addiction, uh, which was largely related to the mental illness portion of her life. And also just navigating not 
only being a woman in Hollywood, but being a woman, period. And so I think for a lot of fans, uh, whether you're a Gen Xer like me and first encountered Carrie in 1977 in the first Star Wars movie and grew up looking to Princess Leia as an example, as as a role model, um, on down to millennials and whatever they're calling the generation after them who are only just now discovering this because of The Force Awakens. I, I think that she has interacted with fandom differently than a lot of celebrities because she's tweeted uh, with them and at them and, and you know, I mean, her, her fans were calling her space mom there at the end and, and it's adorable and sweet. And she embraced that and she adopted that. So I, I think that in Carrie's case, uh, fandom grief is going to play out differently than it has uh, in, in ways that we've encountered before. Well, you know, also being very, very open about uh, about her struggles is 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 huge because even because people, you know, in the public eye still aren't uh, terribly open about that. I mean, the, you know, it it was uh, it was pretty damn shocking. Uh, I want to say seventy six when uh, Betty Ford. Uh, you know when that started to to come out that uh, you know that there are people who need help and treatment and that they were going to um, and that and that she was going to have a center and was going and that was what was uh, what was her cause what was important to her uh, that that wasn't being swept under the rug quite quite as much was um, was a revelation and uh, I mean, we see actors and actresses now who are, uh, or or any other public figure, who seem to have problems with alcohol or drugs, and they don't, uh, they don't, they aren't open about it. And uh, uh, you know, these days we are much more privy to their inner lives because we we see a lot more of them. You know, we have much more of a twenty four hour news cycle uh, about them as well as, as everything else. Exactly. So I think Carrie's openness just kind of helped us to feel like we actually know her. So that it was more like losing a friend or a family member than some celebrity that kind of made some generic tweets every so often. Um, the, the, the openness has definitely made a, a huge difference. And when you talked about Betty Ford, that also sparked another connection in my head back in the 60s um, or late 50s, Bela Lugosi was arguably the first celebrity to openly go to rehab. Uh, the newspapers, the tabloids were there when he was getting released. Uh, if you go to YouTube, there's actually a link, uh, one of his last interviews right after he got out of rehab, and he talks about that a little bit. That that was so unusual back then, but Bela is still very popular, very iconic in, in the horror movie scene, and if you're familiar with the movie Ed Wood, I guess there was some tension. I, I don't know how much this was played up for the film, but there was tension between Bela and Boris Karloff. Uh, Boris Karloff was more popular than Bela for the longest time, and Bela is now arguably more popular. Uh, his, his stuff sells more, that kind of thing. So I, I think, again, his openness and, and his 
honesty about his struggle and sharing that with people might have made a bit of a difference in, in how people perceive him now and, and, and his persistence and popularity, uh, even though he died so long ago. You know, that there's a, exactly, that there's reality behind, uh, behind the facade that, uh, you know, that, that, that so many, uh, that so many people in, in the public eye uh, can't show or they, they think they can't show or that they, they think they're going to lose money if they show. Yeah, and Carrie just kind of taught us how to own whatever's going on with us. And, and, and that's something that she's been very clear about ever since she wrote postcards from the edge which came i think in 88 89 somewhere around in there um she just put it out there and owned it and and she was very vocal about the fact that if she does that and if she owns it she's got control over it whereas if she tries to keep it a secret tries to hide things and then somebody gets a hold of it and and some icky tabloid reports it or whatever then she does not have control of it and she doesn't have control over the narrative that goes with it and i and i just think that it was just something that we've never really seen before and just so very refreshing yeah, and it, and it's certainly smart to own that because because you're right that that the, the tabloids are going to be there no matter what. So you can either uh, hide from what you are uh, and and let them you know kind of carry on their little whisper game campaign against you, or you can own who you are, be upfront about it, and say, yeah, I I messed up. Yeah, this exists about me. This is my reality, and then that turns it on its head. And what they report about you cannot hurt you, or at least can't hurt you in a way that it would if you were in denial. Yeah, so um, it's fair to say that her popularity is probably going to endure for such a long time and beyond the fact that she was on Star Wars. There have been a lot of lovely tributes coming out of the internet uh, from journalists, but we'll share a few of those with you, as well as the fans continuing to celebrate her, and, and, and a lot of them paid tribute to her on the internet in the days surrounding the anniversary of her of her death. So we'll we'll share some of that with you, and you can check that out on the blog. See now, uh, what I also think about um, Carrie Fisher is I, I I also think about her in When Harry Met Sally. Yes, yes. One um, one of one of the few roles that people think about besides Princess Leia is When Harry Met Sally. Uh, for for those who don't know the movie or maybe can't, you know, or maybe it's been a while, uh, she's kind of a sidekick character. But the sidekick characters have much better relationship than the main characters do. Much much more intelligent and mature one. Absolutely. And another role of hers that I really, really liked was the Burbs, which she plays Tom Hanks's wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those movies that's just so funny. I never get tired of it, it especially the way it just pokes holes in conformity and, and, and the underbelly of suburbia. Uh, but Carrie was just great in it she's she's great in everything she does um 
I, I, I think that her greatest performance was her last in The Last Jedi, and it's just really a, a shame that we lost her when we did, because uh, I feel like, you know, she was on another upswing uh, as far as her career goes, uh, the last Jedi probably would have gotten her a lot more offers. Not that she needed them, but um, I'm sure people would have been, you know, just trying to beat her door down to get her it, on their projects. So let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about the movie. Did you see the movie, Janet? I have not seen the movie, but I have no problem with spoilers, so go for it. Right. Well, and that's the thing, listeners. You know my stance on spoilers. I, I, I'm going to not really hold back too many things here. Uh, so if you haven't seen The Last Jedi yet, you might want to stop listening. Uh, but for the rest of you who have or who don't care, let's dig in. So... As I was saying, uh, one of the highlights of this film is that it's Carrie Fisher's final performance and arguably one of her best ones, uh, just some of the best acting she's done in a long time. And, and this is this is the Leia that we kind of always assumed was there, but never shown on the screen. And what I mean by that is when we look at the original trilogy, we, we see her as this icon of, of strength and, and virtue. But if we really think about it, compared to the male characters surrounding her, Leia does not really have as much growth and personal change by the time it's over as Luke Skywalker does or as Han Solo does and what changes she does go through they're defined by the men that surround her so by the end of Return of the Jedi she's Darth Vader's daughter she's Luke's sister and she's Han's girlfriend and and really not much else has changed for her so in The Last Jedi just to see her actualized this way was just a really a happy thing for me. Um, Mark Hamill, again, uh, doing some of his best acting ever. Now, the people who have followed his career uh, loyally over the years, they, they've, they've had a chance to see his range if they saw him in Amadeus on stage or if they follow his voice work. He's arguably the best Joker. Um, fight me. <laughs> he's the best Joker ever. <laughs> um, so, so... The character direction, and, and we'll get into this a little bit in just a moment, the character direction they took with Luke Skywalker exposes Star Wars fans to more of that range that Mark Hamill uh, has and more of his talent. So I, I just, um, I, I was blown away by him in this movie. Uh, the Porgs, the little furry kind of penguiny creatures, um, everybody was expecting them to be the new Ewok and, and just there for a marketing ploy and, and, and just really, really annoying. And they weren't annoying at all. In fact, they were really good. And there was a logical reason for them to be in this movie. And it's because they filmed Luke Skywalker scenes on location in an I island in Ireland. And so the island is also a sanctuary for, for those puffins those those white birds oh well, yeah yeah so you you can't tell the puffins to go away because you're shooting <laughs> so <laughs> right so so they had to cover up the puffins somehow and that's how the porgs came to be ah. i thought it was i thought it was genius i thought it was good that that is a very smart idea i mean because you you just because if you can't get rid of them then you're all you're doing is cgiing them out which which is probably a hell of a lot more costly than just uh, you know slapping something on them and saying, "Oh, look, aliens." Right, or you know, just kind of trying to explain why the galaxy far, far away also has puffins. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> space puffins. Space puffins, right. So, I, as a lot of you know, and we'll get to this in just a moment, the movie's been kind of polarizing in the fandom, but I just kind of wanted to start to talk, start this by way of saying what I loved about the movie. And I love that it undermined a lot of your assumptions going in, and it undermined the assumption that Leia never pursued Jedi training. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit in just a moment. Uh, the humor in the movie was great. It's also one of those polarizing things about it. You're either on board with it or you're not, but if you're willing to just kind of roll with it, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, there's a wonderful scene where R2 engages in some emotional blackmail against Luke Skywalker. <laughs> and, and he does so by, by shooting the hologram of Leia that starts this whole thing, the whole help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope thing. And, and so he, he uses this as leverage to get Luke to do something. And, and the scene just plays so beautifully and, and Luke calls it out as a cheap shot. And it is, but we love R2 for taking it. It's just so great. Um, this movie is so feminist. It's not even funny. Women are getting it done in this movie. And in fact, uh, I, I there, there's an article that we'll share with you, and I agree with it completely. The the real villain in the Last Jedi is toxic masculinity, hmm. and yeah, yeah. So it, it's just you've got the women in the leadership roles, just taking care of business, and the women not in the leadership roles in the trenches, they're taking care of things too. Um, lots of heroic women without being oh look we're women and heroes like they're just being competent women doing their jobs and and it's just a beautiful thing um yoda comes back to us so we've got force ghost yoda and instead of that awful cgi that they did in the prequels we have puppet yoda back and it's just so beautiful to see those scenes between yoda and luke recalling back to the empire strikes back and 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 it, and it works so well because there's actually a puppet in the frame for for mark hamill to interact with so it just plays so beautifully uh i i was touched that aside from seeing carrie again this was one of the scenes where i just really really teared up because it was beautiful Yay. um yeah yeah so i mean it just kind of th- th- there was some you know comfort familiarity you know like with yoda but at the but just if you were married to fan some of your fan theories you were in for a loop um and and obviously uh, for some people setting themselves up for disappointment so have you heard much about the backlash against the last jedi uh, some, I mean, I know that the uh, it, similar to uh, to some of the the backlash against Discovery is that uh, there's sort of a feeling, I think, for some people that uh, some of the um, uh, that that some boxes were getting checked off, particularly with Rose. Yeah, um, that's a little bit of it. Um, one of the things that I want to point out is. Unlike a lot of situations, uh, the backlash against the movie is really complex, and it's coming from a lot of different places for a lot of different reasons. So I'm going to kind of go through some of the common criticisms here. Um, I'll start with the ones that seem more legit to begin with, and then I'll kind of like end on the things that are just sort of fandom butt hurt. Um, 
So we'll share with you a couple of articles that sum up uh, some the points of contention. Uh, there's particularly a nice one from from uh, Vox that sums up the controversy in the different places that it comes from quite nicely. And there's one also that's a good defense of The Last Jedi from Slash Film. And it's basically about uh, how Ryan Johnson is kind of like tearing down Star Wars in order to bring it back up, which is a really simplistic and unnuanced way to explain it. But when you think about how these films are about the baton being passed from George Lucas to Disney and from the original cast to this new cast, it makes a certain kind of sense to me. So, so I'm on board with Ryan Johnson and everything that he did. Um, one of the most common criticisms is Luke's characterization, which I'm praising because, again, it gives Mark Hamill that this vehicle to show much more of what he's capable of than we've seen in the Star Wars films. Um, he's kind of broken. He's kind of dark. Uh, when we leave him, in, when we left him in The Force Awakens, Ray just found him. He's been hiding out on this island all by himself. Leia couldn't find him. So, so we know that he's been intentionally hiding. A lot of people are contesting that, saying, well, you know, if, if he was responsible for Kylo Ren, he should have stayed, he should have fought. But they're forgetting that Obi-Wan Kenobi was hiding in the desert of Tatooine and that Yoda <laughs> was hiding on Dagobah. So it's yeah. just what you do. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, if you if you can't fight, you know, you, you, you lay low. And another difference between Luke's film and Ben Kenobi and Yoda is that Kenobi and Yoda knew that baby Luke and baby Leia were gonna grow up someday and maybe be the people who could turn the tide with what was happening in the galaxy and in the force. They had hope. Luke had no such person that he knew was coming and he had closed himself off from the force in order to hide. So Ray wasn't even on his radar. He didn't even know anything about her until she showed up with his lightsaber. So yeah, it would make sense that Luke would get kind of broken and kind of embittered and kind of feel like he's not welcome or shouldn't isn't, isn't fit to be around people, isn't fit to train Jedi, that kind of thing. I, I thought that the plot line made sense. Um, part of what happened, though, is that Mark Hamill himself kind of inadvertently spoiled the milk and, and sort of set things up for the haters to pounce on because he was initially critical and publicly so about some of the choices Ryan Johnson made in terms of Luke's character direction. He's since walked those back and some of the things that fans have taken and run with, they have exaggerated. Uh, others, Mark Hamill is saying that he's regretted saying them. 
So, and, and it, that, that kind of makes sense, too. Like, I mean, it kind of surprised me that he would be so public anyway, because to me, that kind of comes across as, like, biting the hand that feeds you. Uh, but that said, it was there, it, it's out, it happened. But the guy is entitled to change his mind. And, and a lot of fans just aren't accepting that. They're saying that he sold out, that kind of thing. So he, he regrets it. Unfortunately, the fandom just isn't letting go. Yeah, you know, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of folks who sort of have this this concept that oh yeah he should be the same that he was in um, uh, Return of the Jedi and uh, which which I I always want to call Revenge of the Jedi I might add because I know <laughs> that that was the original name of it but anyway that uh, they they sort of want him to be that way so, but he's he's not the ingenue he hasn't been the ingenue for two decades and or more and um, and he shouldn't be. You know, why why shouldn't he be changed by what happened to him? Why shouldn't he be embittered by the fact that, you know, he thought that everything had been hunky-dory and they had kind of fixed everything, and now it's all gone, gone to pot again? Yeah, and, you know... I'm not the same person I was 30 years ago. I think any of us tries to make the claim that we are, we're lying. I, I think that the main argument that some fans feel supports that he should be the same is that Star Wars is a fairy tale, it's a fantasy, and they want everything to be all nice and good and whatever. And, you know, it, it, just like with The Empire Strikes Back, it was the middle movement of that trilogy. The second trilogy tends to be, or the second piece of the trilogy tends to be darker. And so we've got that dark piece. And I think that fans just had certain assumptions. And when when you are when you have your heels dug into those assumptions and you don't leave room for other possibilities, I think that you set yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And and you know the 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 fact that the second of the trilogy is the dark one, of course, makes sense because uh, in in the first part of the trilogy, it's your setup. You're getting everything together. The team assembles, kind of thing. In the last one, is where there's the wrap up. There's the you know the upshot, and everything has to has to tie up somehow. Whether it's that you leave bodies everywhere, or everybody gets married, or they all run off into the sunset, or or whatever. And so something has to happen in the middle. There has to be some you know some meat in that sandwich, and that's uh, and very often that that is where. Uh, where a writer is going to go darker uh, because there has to be a reason for the third uh, third piece of a trilogy. Yeah, and you can hang the three pieces of a trilogy on the same structure that's a three-act structure for a film. And, and your second act of a film is where the conflict comes in and and you have these the, the these reversals of fortune that happen and the the obstacles and everything so of course that's where all the dark things are going to happen it's not always going to go well for everybody uh because if it did there wouldn't be a movie it would be boring as heck you know it, it would be made for, for six-year-olds um but that's not really what star wars should be i think um you know if you want that they've got plenty of star wars cartoons uh but but as for the middle part of a trilogy i i have no problem with dark luke i really don't he didn't go to the dark side he's not evil he's just dealing with some choices that he made and he's dealing with uh you know what he perceives to be the consequences of those choices 
yeah, you know, he's uh, and 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 he's reacting to what's happening, which is, uh, you know, of course he should be doing that. It's, uh, you know, if you're if you're watching this and, and thinking that he shouldn't have reactions to what's going on, then then if the character doesn't have reactions to what's going on, then the character isn't necessary. Yeah, and I just feel like the idea that he wouldn't be broken and upset um, is simplistic and reductive. That that's just kind of my take on that. Yeah, he and, and, yeah he had to um, he had to have changed because he's not they, they, Mark Hamill as a person isn't what he was, of course not, and uh, and I think it also plays very well to uh, who he is as a, as a human being, as a, as a real person, not not just as, as a as a character, but you know the the actor himself that. Uh, uh, like his look changed considerably when he was in a pretty bad car accident and it's been several years he's older he's weathered and uh and so he should be uh maybe a little sardonic about things maybe a little cynical uh you know he's not the hopeful farm boy he hasn't been the hopeful hopeful farm boy in years he should look that way that he's not yeah, and just to inject a little personal experience into this, I, I've always been, you know, people would look at me and guess me as younger than I am. And a lot of that is just probably because I am the most immature person my age out there anyway. So a lot of that has to do with behavior. Uh, but people don't guess me for considerably younger anymore. And one of my friends said it's, it's because I, I'm finally at that age where I have that look in my eye. Like I hate everything. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I've got the look in my eye that, that that's that I, I can't be bothered with your nonsense kind of thing. Yeah. So nobody's guessing me as, you know, 10 to 15 years younger than I am like they did when I was in my thirties. Uh, it's kind of, they still guess me as younger, but it's closer to, you know, five years younger than I actually am. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you live a life, it starts to show, I'm sorry. And it should, it should, because we're all defined by our experiences. And if the character, if a character who's older is not defined by their experiences, then that character's not realistic. Right. So I'm going to hang on that word realistic there and, and kind of like move on to the next criticism that I wanted to talk about of the film. And there's a scene kind of early on in the movie where a, a ship gets blown up, Leia's ship, and she gets sucked out into vacuum. Now, for those of us who went to the theater knowing full well that Carrie Fisher died in real life and, and that, you know, Leia was so important to us to see this happen so early in the film. There, there was just this this collective gasp, especially the first time I saw the movie in the theater, and everybody was wondering, like, "Oh my God, is this it? Is this it?" And then logic kind of takes over because we heard Ryan Johnson and JJ say things like, "The third movie, Leia was supposed to be very, very important uh, right around the time Carrie died." So you know that this can't possibly be it. And we see her reach out through the force, and because Leia is always having to do this, she facilitates her own rescue by force pulling herself back to the ship where Poe and, and, and other people see her, and so they go rushing to the airlock to, like, let her in so, you know, she doesn't die. And, of course, she's, like, screwed up and in a coma for a while. You know, she doesn't get out unscathed. It's not that unrealistic. 
But a lot of people had a problem with that. Well, you know, it, it, I think those people don't understand Star Wars because Star Wars is always, you know, for the, the science fiction fantasy genre, uh, Star Wars has always um, been more heavily on the fantasy side and Star Trek has always been on more heavily on the science fiction side. You know, you can't, you can't imagine, you know, you, you, once you know that as your background, then these things make sense. But that, that also means that these aren't really the best comparisons to each other. Well, one of the things that I, I kind of agree with in terms of criticism is that the way it was done, it didn't look very realistic. In fact, she kind of looked like Mary Poppins flying through the air. I, I, like you, you almost <laughs> want to see like an umbrella in her hand when it happens. And, and the and when you brought up the comparison to Star Trek, there that that jogged something in my memory. If you watch Star Trek Discovery, there's a Klingon ship. It's it, the outer hull is covered with sarcophagi. Is that the plural for sarcophagus? Works for me. Sure, coffins. Okay. Bunch of coffins. Coffins. So and so in in this scene, we we learn that the Klingons collect their dead and honor them by making them part of the ship and all that kind of stuff. So we see these Klingon bodies floating in space, and then a a tractor beam pulls them up. And there's just like a certain limpness to it, and then kind of like a jerk when the tractor beam grabs them. And, and, you know, they look like dead bodies in space. So I just kind of feel like, you know, if, if Leia kind of like looked a little bit more like that, and then, you know, we saw that hand move and like reach out for the airlock. Um, I, I, I think that fans would have less problems with that. Uh, to me though, I think it's important nonetheless, because it, operates to undermine the assumption that she never pursued Jedi training. And I'm going to talk about that one um, a little bit later, because that's actually going to relate to something else uh, later on when we get to more of like the butt hurt portion. (laughs) Well, you know, there's all this time that comes in between uh, Return of the Jedi and, um, and The Force Awakens. So... Why couldn't she uh, be pursuing, uh, you know, force training, you know, at, and, you know, in addition to uh, raising uh, Ben who becomes evil? <laughs> well, that's the thing. And I think a lot of people made that ass- assumption because in the expanded universe novels, she didn't. And, you know, m- much beyond the basics, you know, levitating rocks, this is how you use a lightsaber, that kind of thing. Um, also, I think that that thing persisted in the novelization of The Force Awakens, which, you know, y- you can only go so far in your assumptions with that because w- when writers do novelizations of the films, yeah, you're getting the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, but the author also has a little bit of latitude in terms of filling in the gaps. So we really don't know where that came from, if that was a product of the author's mind or if that was something that Lucasfilm had always intended or what. So I am kind of old school in that if it didn't happen on the screen, there's a possibility that it might not count. Yeah, I am. I'm actually. I'm. I'm on your on your page with that too. I, I you know, and and this is not to dis uh, uh, 
uh, tie-in writers because they're they're fantastic. But uh, you know, this is something that actually Dayton Ward, who is a tie-in writer for Star Trek, had said, which was that uh, first off, he kind of doesn't care about canon. But one of the things he he had mentioned was that if there's a conflict between what happens on the screen versus what happens on the page, go with what's happened on happening on the screen because what they anticipate from what they write on the page isn't necessarily what the showrunner really wants to do and they might go in that direction or they might not and they shouldn't feel handcuffed to the stuff that's on the page so that the the casual fan also shouldn't feel that the uh the stuff that comes on the screen should be uh you know should should be uh um you know dictated to by the uh by what happens on the page and you know and, and instead it should be a little bit more vice versa actually yeah, and as far as that goes, too, we should feel free to cherry pick it until it's contradicted on the screen. Because the other thing in The Force Awakens that I do cling to for comfort is the fact that Han and Leia never actually got divorced. They just kind of were in this place where they didn't know how to talk to each other anymore. And the fact that they, you know, nobody ever formalized the dissolution of their union means to me at least that they had some hope of a reconciliation later on uh so you know it, it's it's you, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. uh again something might come along later on to contradict that but for now i i like it it's comforting and i'm, I'm gonna keep it go for it <laughs> So moving along, um, another criticism had to do with the big emperor bad Snoke. Uh, he, he's kind of the new Palpatine that came along, but he in the Force Awakened we were left with a lot of questions: who was Snoke? Where did he come from? Again, a lot of assumptions I think came from the novelization because they were talking about how Snoke was uh, manipulating Ben Solo uh, while Leia was pregnant with him. Uh, the the yeah, creepy, just creepy. Um, yeah, so a, creepy. a lot of people um, had a lot of fan theories about who Snoke was. Uh, there was a theory that he was Tarkin reincarnated. There were theories that, uh, you know, he was Darth Plag Plagueis. Plagueis, I can't even remember how to say that. Uh, but just a lot of different ideas on who he could be. And so... Kylo Ren kills him in, in The Last Jedi, and we never get these answers. And so a lot of fans are ticked off because they're confronted with the fact that they've invested all of this time and energy in, in speculating as to who Snoke was. And come to find out, Snoke does not matter. And similar to that is, uh, is Rey's parentage, which I got to say I'm so happy about. That, that she's not uh, a member of this, this big clan. You know what, though? Like, and I was going to kind of save this for next month's episode because, like, there, there's just, like, so much to, like, unpack here. I, I don't think what Kylo Ren told her disproves anything because he's already got the view that his parents are trash. He And... and what he says to her is the oldest trick in a bull in the book. If you're a cult leader or a domestic abuser, which is you are nothing without me. So I, I, I don't put a lot of stock into what he told her. 
and and that's very possible too but uh, but i do like the concept of her not being uh you know royal blood or or you know or or something you know something that that was uh in her dna or whatever you know the alien version of that is uh because then it it makes you feel that there could be that there's more universality to it because it, what is i think it's i think it's kenobi who says this that you know when he's asked what the force is he said this is what happens all around us so if it's something that's all around everybody then potentially anybody could tap into it with the right training or at least with the right motivation well and that's something that luke says too and that's one of the the messages of the movie is that part part of where the jedi went wrong is the idea that it could belong to like any one person or any group of people um and and that like a lot of our assumptions about the force are actually wrong a lot of fans are taking offense to that as well um i'm just kind of thinking though in terms of story symmetry and stuff and and there's other things um you know textual evidence in in in, in the force awakens and and one that i cannot ignore is that when ray and leia um you know share this moment of grief over han solo and they've never met each other before and they hug that the, the musical motif playing underneath that is han and leia's love theme and uh-huh. I'm thinking, if Ray isn't their kid, that's just weird and creepy. And and I don't see JJ like I'm like I'm on a first name basis with him. JJ <laughs> Abrams <laughs> or John Williams getting sloppy like that and making that kind of mistake. I, I just don't see it. And it runs counter to anything that I, I would have taught freshmen when I was teaching film appreciation. Um, you know, everything that happens on the screen is intentional. So I, the, the love theme was purposeful. And so I, I don't know. That's just kind of where I'm coming from. I have, I have, I actually have an entire spreadsheet <laughs> of evidence. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> why, it, it, yeah, I'm sorry. Huh? No, go well, ahead. Well, you know what what you're saying is that that everything on the screen is intentional, and that that's exactly something that 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 all of us as consumers of um, of film in particular or television for that matter should be aware of is that. <laughs> There's a reason why a character wears a red shirt and not a blue one. There's a reason why a character is taller, has a beard, is eating oatmeal instead of bacon and eggs. There is a reason for all of this stuff, some of which might be budget. But there's always reasons. None of this stuff is ever by chance, ever haphazard. Yeah, and and I think that there's an argument too, just for the fact that we've still got one more movie to go. Um, you know, like I, I I I can appreciate the fans who find it refreshing that maybe Ray isn't part of the Skywalker clan, but I also think that we're kind of fooling ourselves if we think that we have a definitive answer because we still have one more movie to go. And and then and presumably that's the one that's going to tell it all because uh, otherwise they ain't got no more movies left. Yeah, and a lot of the reviews that I'm reading are saying that uh, you know Ryan Johnson has done something contrary to Abrams and that you know he's showing no interest in Abrams and his mystery box and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know. Maybe this is the kind of misdirection that plays into the mystery box, and we'll finally have the solution with the third movie. I don't know. But to kind of bring this back to Snoke and the fact that he doesn't matter, and fans being upset with that. Snoke is what I would call, I, I think that he fits as a MacGuffin. And, and, and are you familiar with a MacGuffin? 
Yeah, it's the red herring. It's the misdirection. It's the thing that didn't matter. It's the thing that didn't matter. So I'm going to name some classical moments from classic movies. Kind of explain this concept. Uh, You ever see Psycho, Janet? Hell yeah. So for those of you who have not seen Psycho, and I'm talking about the original one, not the remake, because I haven't seen the remake, so I don't know if they did something different. Uh, Janet Lee plays what we think is the protagonist. She's stolen a bunch of money, and she lands at the Bates Motel in order to hide out and, and kind of collect herself. And, and we know that she's stolen the money, and we think that the money is important. And then she decides to take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so on and so forth. Right. Uh, so so the money didn't matter at all. The money is just what landed her in that time and place. Uh, the same thing could be said about the transit pla- papers in Casablanca. Yes. Uh, <laughs> You know, they, they bring two people to town, uh, you know, they, they haunt uh, Humphrey Bogart, you know, they're, they're one of them's from his past, a woman, a love affair. The love triangle is what's important, not the papers themselves. The papers are kind of what starts the thing, but the papers are not the payoff. And a little bit differently, you could even say Rosebud from Citizen Kane. Rosebud and the transit papers and Janet Lee's money are the things that are driving character behavior, but they are not important to the plot. Well, sometimes, uh, you know, what a writer will do is that they need something to set things up. They need a reason why X, Y, Z happens, you know, and not even necessarily, you know, what, what's called the inciting incident, but just there has to be some purpose behind why the character goes to Utah, why the, you know, why the character joins the army or whatever, that there's just to be something that starts it off, but that the thing that kicks off the reaction is not what's important. It's the whole reaction that's, that, that's important. Yes. And so in that way, Snoke really sort of fits the idea of a MacGuffin. So if, if you dislike Snoke being a MacGuffin, that's your prerogative. But if you're going to say that that inherently makes the movie bad, you know, get out your Ouija board and argue that with Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> at the um the the magic eight ball ask again later right exactly like like i I think hitch would have appreciated the fact that this happened um but fans not so much um yeah what one of the um criticisms is coming from the segment of fandom that's accusing Star Wars of queer baiting, and particularly with the Finn and Poe relationship, which uh, the portmanteau for that is Storm Pilot, Stormtrooper and Pilot. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, Storm Pilot is pretty much completely an invention of the internet. There's really no textual evidence or even subtext, really, I would say in the movie that says that, Hey, these two could possibly hook up. Not, not like the two in rogue one, which I think very definitely were a same sex couple. Um, Storm pilot, on the other hand, 
pretty much was just born out of the fact that it was a possibility, but not a lot of strong support for it. And, you know, I got to say, I used to party at a lot of gay bars. I was a hairdresser for a number of years. So you, you kind of come into a lot of contact with the LGBTQ community um, when, when you do hair. And, and I work for a university. So again, a lot of LGBTQ community amongst my colleagues and my students. I like to think that my gaydar works pretty well. And I really just don't see a lot there in terms of Finn and Poe. But it was one of those things, though, that I didn't actively ship it. But if Lucasfilm went that way, I would have definitely supported it. So, you know, I mean, it was just kind of one of those things where like, you know, I, I, I don't see the evidence, but it does exist as a possibility. So, hey, party on, rock on if you want to do that. I think it would be cool. So it's not coming from the film, but rather the accusation is that the queer rating seems to be coming more as a marketing strategy for the film. So when stars are asked about uh, the possibility of the storm pilot relationship, uh, you know, Daisy Ridley has answered very coyly in a will they or won't they kind of way. And people have taken John Boyega's uh, remarks about, oh yeah, Poe, he's my boy, he's my dude, he's my man, um, to, to kind of be in support of that ship. Um, other things. Uh, is that me? Um, hmm? I hear a ringing. Oh, that—that that is me. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, a slight detour. That's okay. Uh, so, getting back to the queer baiting, um, Abrams has JJ Abrams has suggested that yes, there is room for you know LGBTQ characters and relationships in the galaxy far, far away. And Ryan Johnson uh, has tweeted a piece of Stormpilot fan art, which uh, the fandom was taken as not only approval of, of the relationship, but maybe like an acknowledgement that it was happening. So what the argument here is that Star Wars and Lucasfilm and Disney would have probably been better off if they had just been upfront and honest right away and said, hey, Stormpilot isn't a thing. It's it's not going to happen. And then those fans wouldn't have felt so blindsided uh, when, you know, they see Rose uh, express feelings for Finn. Uh, and, and, you know, people have been kind of disappointed that Lucasfilm took the heteronormative route. Um, well, well, I think a lot of Stormpilot is also a lot of wishful thinking. Uh, but that's sort of been, you know, kind of been the modus operandi for a lot of these, where people see things that aren't necessarily there because they see what they want to say. Yeah, on the other hand, though, like with, with Finn and Poe, though, like as far if we just take uh, The Force Awakens in isolation, there wasn't anything there that says it wasn't going to happen either. Like, if, if we go back and... and the, the people who would slash Han Solo and Luke Skywalker together, it's like, okay, well, they were both, uh, b before Luke knew that Leia was his sister, they were both experience, uh, expressing romantic interest in her. And, of course, back then we, we didn't really uh, think much in terms of people who were bisexual or pansexual or, or gender nonconforming back then. But textually, 
what we had were two men showing interest in a woman. So at least that would kind of say, okay, well, that establishes a pattern of behavior. And because both Finn and Poe were pretty platonic with the women in the movie, that did open up the possibility, I think, for... um, either one of them to to be interested in the same sex um, and maybe even end up together eventually. So while it was wishful thinking, I think that it was maybe n- not in the face of contrary evidence, if that makes sense. Well, they didn't have anything that was uh, uh, that that, uh, that said, no, 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 it's not. Right, exactly. So the other the other side of this though that I'm kind of looking at is like well what would the consequences have been if everyone from Lucasfilm on down to Abrams and Johnson and and the stars if they were upfront about Finn and Poe not being a thing then you know I kind of feel like the the the, the same segment of the fandom might have uh, felt excluded then and alienated then and then we would be having a different conversation but for the same reason um so you know i I can kind of maybe sympathize with lucasfilm's side of this thing by saying well you know we don't want to we don't want to exclude anybody but we also don't want them to get mad about something that they haven't seen yet yeah well and 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 in the meantime we don't want to exclude them because you know they uh they buy tickets too well, yeah, exactly. And and that's really what it comes down to. So, you know, I kind of feel like that there's no good way that they could have answered the question or, or reacted to it. I, th- I think that, you know, being upfront would have been uh, a little bit more transparent, but I could see why maybe people are upset feeling like, you know, okay, people have been hinting that, yeah, okay, maybe it is a thing. Um, it sort of seems similar to me the way David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson play up the fact that a lot of people in the X-Files fandom real life ship them and, and have these theories about Duchovny and Anderson being involved in, in an off-screen romance. And then that segment of the fandom is called the Jalovnys, uh, Gillian and Duchovny. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, why... I mean, it hits a personal squick for me because it's like I shipping real people is kind of uncomfortable for me um, because it just kind of seems to invade privacy and that kind of thing. But I think that there's a bit of it that's more acceptable because it's also heteronormative. Uh, so people aren't quite so upset, you know, when they aren't really dating. Uh, a... a, a more apt comparison might be uh, if people watch Once Upon a Time, they might be familiar with this. And I don't watch it, but this is something that I came across in my research for my dissertation. Uh, the Swan Queen ship. It's a same-sex, female-female um, relationship that uh, a segment of the Once Upon a Time fandom ships. It's not canonical. It's not on the screen. Uh, but they want Swan Queen to happen. And and I don't know anything about these characters. I think one's a swan. I think one's a queen. I don't know. Um, but, what the hell if I know? Right, right. I, I don't watch this show. I probably should. Um, but they, they've been known to contact the showrunners and, and 
do anything from ask nicely to like send kind of like overbearing and threatening messages about why Swan Queen should be a thing. And they put it forward as this political thing that there needs to be more LGBTQ representation, particularly uh, healthy uh, lesbian ships. But the other segments of the fandom kind of feel like, well, you know, it would be one thing to ask them for more LGBTQ representation, but the fact that it always has to be Swan Queen suggests to the rest of the fandom that it's more about furthering what they perceive to be a crack ship than it is about anything, you know, any meaningful political change. So, so there's a schism in the fandom. And so I kind of feel like the, the, the accusation of queer baiting is maybe not quite as severe as what happened with Swan Queen, but just this idea that like, hey, you know, definitely send the message to J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy and, and anybody else uh, who matters at Lucasfilm and let them know that, hey, you want to see LGBTQ representation, but to specify that it needs to be these two specific characters, I, I think is just like a little presumptuous and, and, you know, telling the artist what to do. Yeah, you know, you're uh, you're trying to dictate what, what goes on the screen and that's just, that just ain't gonna happen. You know, it doesn't mean that, that, that uh, creators do listen to their audiences, but uh, but it doesn't mean that they do what their audience wants. Yeah, so you know, I think that we've just gotten so, so, somehow we've gotten this idea that everything needs to be fan service, and it really doesn't. And you know, e egalitarian and fair is having uh, positive LGBTQ characters and relationships shown on screen. Fan service is when it's the characters that you, the fan, decides uh, should be doing this. And I, I don't think that the fans should have the uh, necessarily the authority or the agency to demand specific characters uh, be fit to that mold. Well, and I hate to break it to a lot of fans, but very often what they want is not what serves the writing very well, doesn't necessarily serve the plot very well. Plus, there's a million other things that are going on behind the scenes that you don't even know about, whether it's that an actor is sick or that somebody is being recalcitrant when it comes to contract negotiations, or they can't get this location that they wanted or whatever. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons why things are done, you know, on screen and off screen. And uh, fans are not privy to most of these things. They're, they're looking at it with this very tight tiny lens. They're seeing exactly one tree and the uh, the people who are writing and producing, they're the ones who are seeing that forest. Exactly. And I couldn't agree with you more. And, and that also kind of relates to like the other, uh, what I would call um, major and, uh, you know, legitimate uh, criticism of the film, which has to do with like plot character. Plot, bleh, plot holes and character arts. Um, so certain things, yeah, when, when you really think about them, you kind of wonder, hmm, for example, uh, Ray uh, received some training from Luke, and I don't know, some people get the impression that it seems to take months. I didn't get that impression, but some people did. Um, while everything else only seems to take hours. And I'd like to remind everybody that we've been here before with The Empire Strikes Back. Luke was getting all of this training on Dagobah from Yoda while, while 
Han and Leia and Chewie were limping without hyperdrive from, you know, losing the Imperials at, at the asteroid belt, trying to make it to Lando and, and Bespin. So, you know, you, you get the impression that Luke's training is taking a long time, but when you think about the Millennium Falcon without hyperdrive and that they're doing, you know, interstellar travel, like, you know, trying to make it to the next system, I mean, you know, at sublight speeds, that should take, I don't know, centuries? <laughs> yeah. It, 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 you know, I mean, work that out. Um, you, you've got that ship, it's got probably limited supplies in terms of food. Leia's literally only got the clothes on her back that she escaped Hoth with. And and somewhere in there, she and Han Solo have found time to fall in love and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we've had to reconcile these time differences before. Um, you know, so at least in the Han and Leia fandom, uh, we, we kind of can see that, okay, maybe those events from the evacuation of Hoth to uh, everything that went down in Bespin, maybe six weeks. So that way Luke could kind of maybe seem legit with everything that he learned, uh, but Han, Leia, and Chewie didn't starve to death trying to get to Bespin. In fact, one of the, uh, uh, in, Han and, in, in the Han and Leia fandom, uh, there's this uh, infamous, and I mean this in a good way, story uh, by, by a fan author named Leela Starsky called 40 Days to Bespin. And, and let me tell you, this was like the best mommy porn ever. Like, like forget 50 shades, <laughs> forget 50 shades. This, this was X rated, but with a plot and like the emotion stuff. But, but it also had the distinction of Leela Starsky was, uh, a very talented, uh, uh, artist and illustrator so it was also illustrated let me tell you um yeah so uh definitely a warm room when when you read her stuff um but you know it it kind of among han and leia fans though because of the story it just sort of became this shared headcanon uh among han leia fans that yeah okay you know we we can we we can work with about a month and a half that that seems about right uh so you know just to say you know to, to trash um, the the Last Jedi for this kind of inconsistency, like you know, l- let's think about what came before. We 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 we've had to deal with this thing. Um, this is not new. Uh, there's also a part where Finn and Rose uh, go to this uh, casino city, uh, Catobite, and uh, the the whole part didn't really seem to fit in, into the second act. Uh, a lot of people say that it was unnecessary. It just kind of dragged the film down and, and that it was the reason that the film was two and a half hours and it doesn't need to be that long. But um, as, as some other critics are saying, though, um, it all kind of comes together in the third act. And so a lot of the things that people are complaining about in terms of plot and character, um, it's because they weren't meant to fit until things kind of come to a head at the end. And, you know, that can be kind of taxing and exhausting on a viewer. Um, but I think that a lot of the things that are plot holes and, quote, character problems are arguable. I think a lot of the things have been resolved in, inside the film, if, if you really think about it. Uh, but what we've ended up with, and this will kind of like make the turn into fandom butthurt here, uh, you've got fans tweeting and posting angrily as though they speak for the entire fandom about how much this movie sucks. And number one, you don't speak for the whole fandom. And number two, the movie does not suck. You're not liking something that they did doesn't 
make it a bad movie. What it makes it is not the thing that you wanted to happen. Oh well, you know, and and fans never ever do that where they they think that what they like or doesn't or don't like is uh, um, you know representative of every single other person ever in the entire fandom. Yeah, and I think that when you know you're you're tweeting at uh, you know showrunners and producers and directors, I, I think that somehow people get it in their heads. You know, we, we've made the mistake of telling people probably when we taught them how to write business letters in English class or in high school or whatever that uh, statistically, for every one person who makes a complaint, a um, hundred other people feel that way. You know, there, there's this perception out there, so people kind of get into this thing where they think that they have more authority if they speak as though they're speaking for other people as well. And what that really does actually is undermine what you're trying to do because, you know, the person that you're writing to can recognize that you're, you're kind of over inflating your sense of power there. Yeah. There, there's, you know, that there's a thought that they're, that they've got an authority that they don't have uh, is, uh, it's troubling that, that you know that a lot of I think a lot of folks uh, feel that way because they, because they want to feel that they're the thought leader on something or other and that uh, obviously they're right and everybody's going to agree with them. Yeah, and, and it's just not true. So, like anecdotally, a couple of things that I've been running into. Um, you know, just in my own social media accounts. And I'm not really providing any links to this because I don't want to call out specific individuals. But, you know, if you just bust open Tumblr or Twitter, you'll, you'll find it. Um, there's this overwhelming sentiment of just because it's old doesn't mean that we need to change it, that we need to reinvent it. And, you know, that if you wanted to do something new, then you should do your own new thing. But we, we, we've said this before about Star Trek Discovery the franchise's survival doesn't depend on older films. It depends on younger films, uh, younger films, younger fans assimilating it the same way we did and, and buying stuff for the next 40 years and that kind of thing. So, you know, we're not really the ones that need to be satisfied here. And, and you know, this is going to be a rude awakening for some people. Um, but this is true. Um, another, uh, Thing that I saw happening on Tumblr a couple of times is an accusation that Ryan Johnson is a racist. What? And yeah, yeah, I know this. What that's that was my reaction too. And and the reason cited for this is you know so we know Rose she's the Asian character. Her sister dies earlier in the film, so it supposedly is like this dead Asian trope. She just exists to die. Um, also, later on, when Finn and Rose are captured by by uh, the First Order, forced to kneel before fascists, and so I'm I'm kind of like looking at this stuff, and and, and they say they say that Poe has been reduced to the hot headed Latino guy. Now, getting back to Finn and Rose kneeling before the First Order, my reaction is this and and granted you know i i have the situatedness as as a white woman so you know i i, I do enjoy a certain amount of privilege there and, and there are certain things that maybe i haven't had to think about but I, I i do have to ask the question is this not maybe what happens when you racially diversify 
your your main cast and your bad guys have been established to have been modeled on the Nazis and the fascists of World War II, and you're showing fascists behaving like fascists. <laughs> Which is why they're supposed to be behaving. Be behaving. Uh, but I can sort of, you know, in a very, very roundabout way, I can kind of see their point because these are, um, uh, because... Um, John Boyega is, is a person of color, and um, I don't know the the actress's name who plays Rose, but she's Asian. That uh, they're the ones who are kneeling, as opposed to Ray, who's white. And and I get that, and but I also think though that if the cast was not multicultural, and and granted. We the, there is a division here. Like the, the 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 good guys are multicultural, whereas the bad guys, just like in 1977, there's an awful lot of white faces in the bad guys. So I I kind of think that number one, it would weaken the statement. Like like you know this this is not shown as a good thing. It's not depicted as glorifying fascism it definitely comes across on the screen that this is a very bad thing that's happening and we should be mad that it happened you know um so if we had a white character then i think that it doesn't stop being problematic it just starts being problematic because you have a white good guy cast that is not racially diversified hmm okay do you see yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 I think so. Uh, what about the petitions? That that was wacky, as far as I was concerned. That is whack. So um, there, there's all these crazy petitions out there. Um, a couple of them want um, The Last Jedi removed from canon, or uh, one uh, demands that they reshoot The Last Jedi. And I'm like, oh my god, if you knew how much time and effort it took to make a, make a movie, like, I don't know. I, I would hope that these were tongue-in-cheek, but a lot of them aren't. And in fact, one petition's originator has already walked it back by saying that he acknowledges that it was a bad idea to start the petition. Uh, he blames it on a recent surgery or injury or something, and he was on a lot of painkillers and disappointed with the movie and just, you know, <laughs> in, in his painkiller fog, not handling it very well. So he immediately ran out and, and made the petition. So, yeah, um, not really the, the best way to <laughs> deal with your disappointment. Um, pushing it harder, uh, Ryan Johnson has been getting death threats. That's horrible. That is very horrible. Uh, none of the articles out there go into much detail, which, you know, I mean, I don't know. If I was Ryan Johnson, I may, I might not want much detail either because it would just give the people doing it a lot more attention than they deserve but there are a couple of articles out there that do mention that it's happened and then you know you've got your uh, usual mix of men's rights groups and the alt-right uh, you know claiming that again the film is uh, you know pushing a social justice agenda you know so again you know issues surrounding the the, the multicultural caste um, and even some alt right whack jobs who are claiming uh, credit for tanking uh, the the fan uh, ratings uh, at Rotten Tomatoes and and causing that disparity between critics and fans because critics are are raving about it, but the fan rating is somewhere just over 50%. 
Yeah, well, uh, well, you know, and there's uh, a similar crowd who are trying to thank the ratings for uh, Discovery. That seems to be the uh, modus operandi of a lot of people, that if they don't like something, they're going to make sure that nobody else can enjoy it. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, that idea that they should be able to speak for everybody and that they're the ones that are right. You know, and whatever happens, if you don't like it, don't watch it. <laughs> yeah, you know, don't you have other things in your life you could be watching or doing? You know, is, isn't there something else in the great panoply of human experience that maybe you could be spending your time on? <laughs> Apparently not, because I get the feeling that they wouldn't know what the word panoply means anyway, but... <laughs> Peloponnesian War. Look it up. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, and so all, all of this is kind of culminating in the perception that uh, the last Jedi um, is failing at the box office and that it's flopping because it has not made as much money as The Force Awakens. But, you know, as of New Year's Eve, it was up to $1 billion worldwide, uh, which is not shabby at all. So just because no. it didn't make as much doesn't mean that it's failing and again just, just to kind of say that the franchise has been here before empire strikes back is arguably arguably the best film out of the original trilogy and, and we kind of regard it that way now but back then it had uh the weakest uh opening box office of the original trilogy hmm. uh Critics didn't get it at the time, you know. There's, there was just, you know, the reaction kind of wasn't as strong as it is today. But then, you know, most people, it would occur to them to be jerks. <laughs> and like well, some, and they couldn't be, you know, in in quite such an easy way as you can be now. Right, but one of the articles though um, does kind of do the same thing in terms of it looks at the fan reactions from letters to the editor in Starlock magazine, which basically was kind of functioning as the internet is now. Granted, you know, they would only post so many of them, but the reactions were kind of similar to uh, The Last Jedi in terms of people complaining about characterization not being consistent and supposed plot holes and you know, things of that. So, so the more things have changed, the more they stay the same. So, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking that we're going to remember the last Jedi as like this really like daring thing that ended up paying off uh, right now. I think it's just too fresh. It's too new. And you know, the people who are disappointed, the sting uh, hasn't quite worn off, um, but critics and fans alike, you know, just kind of um, we're, we're both hot and cold with the empire strikes back. And, you know, now we think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So there you go. Yeah, it's uh, you know that that uh, maybe give it a little bit of time. I think that I think that the other thing with uh, with Last Jedi is that the way that it's uh, the way that it was written and the way that it was executed gives writers way more outs, way more ways to develop it and um, and and to uh, to to put in the the last the final uh, upshot of this this great saga. Uh, because if, if everything had been more or less the same, then you'd be going into, uh, your writers would be going into the this last movie thinking, okay, what do we do now? Yeah, and you know, I, I think that if you keep everything more or less the same, then it's like, why even have a writer? Like, just give a chimp a typewriter, like seriously, <laughs> you know? Be because if, if you're going to do the same old cookie cutter thing, that's, that's boring, and anybody could do that. Um, you know, a lot of fan writers out there have, um, you know, 
spent a lot of time into trying to stylistically evoke what we saw on the screen. So there's a lot of talent out there that could do that if it was a matter of that. Um, I think Ryan Johnson uh, made some daring moves in terms of trying to give us substance. And I got to tell you, you know, I would have maybe been upset about some of these things back in the day when I was like 14. <laughs> and and I remember even like in my late 20s, early 30s, uh, saying some pretty un- unkind things about the expanded universe novels, especially because, um, you know, as, as a Han and Leia fan, uh, I, I, I was with the rest of the fandom there in terms of feeling like we were being excluded. Uh, they were, you know, undermining Han and Leia's relationship, not quite the way they did in the force awakens, but I, I think that the expanded universe sort of desensitized me to that because, uh, you know, for a long time, um, I don't, I don't know if you know, but in the novels, they killed Chewbacca, which kind of, ah! st- yeah. And, and so like, it, it just sort of like created this big problem in Han and Leia's marriage. And so he was, you know, he, he became the drunk loner and she became the ice princess who retreated into her work. And there, there's some of those implications in the force awakens. So, but, but as a Han and Leia fan back then, it was extremely unsatisfying. And in fact, it kind of felt like, um, the, the people who were in charge of the novels were deliberately trying to hurt us and tell us to, to, to bug off because, you know, that they were more focused on Luke and this original character, Mara Jade and all this kind of stuff. And we just felt left behind and left out. So I, I understand disappointment. I really do. So haters, um, you know, I mean, send me letters if you, if you think you have to, I, I, I get disappointment, but my point is, is that I eventually grew up and grew out of that. And so now when I see, you know, The Force Awakens and Han and, Han and Leia's marriage uh, in a lot of trouble, if not over, um, you know, I and having lived a life and having had a couple of really crappy relationships myself, I, I can just kind of look at that and nod and go like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> More about me than you ever wanted to know, but that's... that's um, <laughs> You know, that's one of the things to like, I, I do humanistic research. I, I'm a qualitative person, not a quantitative person. So a lot of my research involves the researcher being the research instrument. So I, I have to acknowledge my situatedness uh, and, and my standpoint when I come at these things. And so that's my standpoint. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pushing 50 and I've lived a life and not all of it's been good. So I get it. And I don't necessarily need Star Wars to give me a uh, pablum fantasy. Um, it, it's nice to know that things sometimes happen to the characters that I can relate to. Yeah, it's you know, we, I think that a lot of um, viewers, you know, a lot of audience, has a tendency to want the the happily ever after, the you know, nothing bad could happen to, you know, our characters. This is this is our ship. These are our people, and well, you know, that happens sometimes. So you know, you know, people grow apart, or there's there's other reasons why things just don't work out 
Yeah, and you know, I wrote a lot of those fanfics, right, where they lived happily ever after and, and everything worked out. And, you know, the problems were these minor uh, uh, sitcom kind of problems that could be solved in a half an hour or in the space of a short story, whatever came first. Um, but, you know, w- when you're doing a big epic saga, perfect is a pretty boring place to be. Agreed. And uh, so, viva la imperfection. So, yeah, so I've talked, like, forever about uh, The Last Jedi. I will say that there's a couple of things that I'm going to prepare for the next show and maybe, uh, you know, so, some of these extras that we do that I might talk talk about in a freestanding kind of way because, like I said at the top of this segment, there is so much to unpack. And so I kind of want to talk about Death of the Author a little bit. I kind of skipped that part here. Uh, but, you know, in terms of Leia and Jedi training, there there's a Death of the Author thing that can kind of happened there um and also because it's been top of mind because of my prelim exams uh you know maybe about the representation of women in the star wars saga well so let's talk news news oh my god weird stuff going on so uh elisa schlesinger's girls only show was uh got sued because uh a lawsuit over the quote-unquote war on men this was uh reported in the hollywood reporter now folks i hate to break this to you but there's no right to entertainment (laughs) you mean there's not (laughs) Well, you know, the whole life, liberty, pursuit of happiness thing. Yeah, that's not the law. Okay. <laughs> that's not it. There's, you know, so if, if men are excluded from a showing of, uh, of, of this woman's show or of anything else, it's not something that you, you, you want to sue over. Hey, knock yourself out, spend some money, put some some bucks in some lawyer's pocket so that they can turn around and put some bucks into the, into the pockets of people who sell Mercedes Benzes. But, uh, you know, but that's about all that that's going to happen from this because, uh, courts are just in general, not really that interested in carving out new, uh, new rights, they're really, really not interested in carving out new rights for people. And unless there could be something proven in here that there was something going on beyond entertainment, such as, for example, let's say there were a bunch of business deals that were happening during uh, during these shows that men were being excluded from, then they'd really have a really, really good argument about this. But here, they just plain don't. And this does go back to something that I brought up when we were talking about the sexual harassment in that, you know, a a lot of these arguments that come from men's rights groups or people who just are kind of generally uninformed and maybe don't give a lot of thought to feminism, um, you know, we, we, we have a lot of systemic misogyny uh, in our culture right now. So culturally, when you exclude women, uh, we, we have generations of equal, inequality uh, supporting that. When we exclude men from a show, this is not a cultural problem and men are not being typically denied something it's it's a whole different ball of wax if you're denying something to a historically oppressed class than if you're de- denying something to a historically privileged class 
exactly exactly which is the same thing also with uh with uh with race as well uh so uh but i i wanted to segue into uh a little bit of amusement before we wrap up <laughs> I, I i'm gonna mangle his last name and i apologize in advance my milo yianopoulos so sure. <laughs> okay so so we'll, we'll go with that so this dude had been in the uh had been um Big, he's a big trumper. He's he's got other issues. He's a gay man, by the way. Uh, so there is a right to free speech. Okay, but there's no right to be a jerk, which is <laughs> a nice nice word for that. So Mister Yiannopoulos has been in court, and details are lots of fun because. So here's the deal: he was offered a, uh, an eighty thousand dollar advance. Actually, he he received an eighty thousand dollar advance as a check was cashed from Simon and Schuster to write a book to write a uh, to write his memoir which was going to be called dangerous he apparently went the lazy route copying and pasting a bunch of reddit junk and also failing to cite any of his quotes but the last straw was the total hot mess of a manuscript which we have and are going to link to <laughs> in the show notes uh and it, it it defies description. Let's put it that way. It has a misogynistic and racist sides peppered throughout it. The editor, this is actually the second editor on this, lost all objectivity by about the 20th comment and just sort of threw up their metaphorical hands. And I will read a little bit of this to you and you'll find this amusing, I hope. And so Simon and Schuster canceled the, the, the book deal, which was like for $225,000, dollars uh, Yiannopoulos sued them in New York Supreme Court for $10 bucks for breach of contract. Ugh. Now, I'll tell you, I suspect he'll win by the way it is but i also know that courts often have a sense of humor on junk like this and they'll probably just uh award him a buck (laughs) i'm looking at page 135 out of 267 pages so here's the original quote the original uh from uh from from the manuscript says and look at me too other than Trump, Farage, and possibly Ann Coulter, is there anyone in the English-speaking world that the mainstream media prefers to smear and rep- misrepresent? I'm called a sexist, a misogynist, a racist, an Islamophobe, a transphobe, a homophobe, yes, really, a white nationalist, a white supremacist, a supervillain, an attention seeker, guilty, and every other nasty label you can imagine. And just look where it got me, a quarter million dollar book deal and my own tour bus. I really hope the mainstream media continues to try to destroy me. Keep it up, lads. I'm sure it'll work eventually. Any day now, believe in yourselves. That's his original writing. Oh, God. <laughs> the editor the editor went through this with a red pencil. First off said, okay, a quarter of a million dollar book deal and my own tour bus. The editor said, comment number 290, I might add, no more references to your book advance or the publishing process. Oh, they, my God. They crossed out the keep it up, lads. They crossed up the any day now, believe it in yourselves. Uh, it's... it's Ah, I, I I don't even know how to how to describe this. Actually, let me let me find something else which which is also amusing. Narcissistic, self-aggrandizing. <laughs> I got it for you. So, um, chapter ten, page one hundred and ninety-five. It's called. I kid you not. It's called. Why ugly people hate me. 
Oh, dear God. So the comment, which is comment number 416, says, delete entire chapter. The book is better overall without hitting these ugly people, quote unquote, notes in the, in the other, without hitting these other uh, ugly people notes in the other chapters and better overall by deleting this one. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, then, oh my and, then, God. and then the following comment is beauty regime moved to box at end of chapter after Nietzsche section. Oh God. <laughs> so, so he goes on and on in this chapter, which of course the, the editor once completely ditched where he's complaining about a woman who was overweight, who was uh, criticizing him. So of course he's all big on fat shaming lovely fat shaming in here uh including uh i wish i could find this quickly which i can't but but he uh he says something about where uh all fat people want to do is uh drink milkshakes <laughs> well this is true i mean as a fat woman yes all i want to do is drink milkshakes but there is more to me than that and i don't always drink milkshakes sometimes i drink beer you know, it brings the boys to the yard. <laughs> <laughs> oh Quote. My God. You, you, you win 2018 already. <laughs> oh my God, on the first day. Awesome. So, <laughs> so here's what he really wrote. He said, the fat acceptance movement isn't what you think. It isn't about obese, obese people accepting fat into their system by downing a milkshake every chance they get. Fat acceptance holds that over people overweight people are like gays quote born that way and quote that is genetically predisposed to be fat there may be some truth to that okay but the fat acceptance movement also bridges the fact value gap arguing that fat people should not be encouraged to improve their weight and that any attempt to tell them the truth about their health and romantic prospects constitutes fat shaming so of course the 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 um, editor comments comment number 428 this is not true no what are you it's against the health issues uh <laughs> You know, and, and it also includes a little bit later, same paragraph, which the editor wisely, you know, uh, erased, which was, quote, this is Milo's quote. He wrote this. Apparently, the goal is to look homely even by lesbian standards, end quote. Oh, God. And so comment number 829 is don't use lesbian as a slur. It goes on and on and on like this. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, I don't know, like, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of fat shaming also disguised as concern trolling, you know, that this whole false concern for other people's health, and it's just oh, yeah. a, a backhanded way uh, of, you know, telling people that you think that they're crap, and so, I, I don't know, this this guy just needs to go away, he, he just needs to sit down, take a seat, and, and fade into obscurity. Yeah, certainly. Um, page 260 out of 267, so it's near the end. Simply put, when someone calls you names, as the left is so fond of doing, and so, of course, the uh, editor, comment number 592 says, and as you do too, there is no need to be upset, <laughs> ruffled, or apologetic. These are just outbursts of moral rage, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. If you make a point or reveal a fact and someone responds with cries of racist, sexist, homophobe, or any other ways that the left now spells, quote, heretic, end quote, just coolly respond with the now immortal phrase, not an argument. Comment number 593 from the edit from that poor editor. But what about <laughs> when you call others names? 
as you have, as you have throughout the book, except where I have deleted. <laughs> this is such. A, there's this incredible um, uh, lack of self uh, self awareness. I think is the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. He. He. It's. It's. It lacks self awareness. It's tone deaf. It's hypocritical. Um, and I mean, I, I I would be very surprised if he sat down with a, a psychologist and the psychologist didn't walk away giving him a diagnosis uh, of you know some kind of like um, a narcissistic personality disorder or something like that because this is just crazy. They're all wrong. No matter how visually appealing my face is, the alt-right joins campus crybabies, the morbidly obese, and the Muslim Brotherhood as one of the few groups in America that does not want me associated with them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He goes on and on about how, how pretty he is, he thinks. Well, and, and, you know, and here's the thing, too, is that, you know, people... <laughs> movements like the alt-right like grab hold of guys like this because you know okay so he is a gay man so somehow that gives them legitimacy right and you know just because you can find the one gay guy who will say the things that you want them to say does not mean that they are correct true uh right uh ethically sound <laughs> anything of that nature yeah, yeah, exactly. That that there's uh, that that he's thinking, oh, or rather, what they're thinking is that he's giving them legitimacy because yes. then they can say, "Oh, well, we're not really homophobic." Look, this gay guy says everything's fine. Well, and, and you know, when the whole Confederate flag thing blew up a couple of years ago, you know, I, I saw some, you know, extreme right uh, reporting in which. Um, and, and it might have even come from Fox News as well. They, they found basically the one black man who was willing to say that he didn't have a problem with the Confederate flag being flown on government buildings. And so that was supposed to like shoot down the whole argument that, hey, maybe we fetishized other people's pain and shouldn't fly this flag. <laughs> Yeah, it, well, you know, it's the same thing with, you know, any woman who uh, supports Harvey Weinstein or anything like that. Oh, yeah, everything must be hunky-dory because we found this one counter example. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, to bring it to you, folks, that, that's, that's not a logically sound argument, and you're not doing yourself a favor by constructing such an argument. <sighs> So, 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 so anything else noteworthy from good old Milo or, or is it just safe to say that it's a hot mess minus the hot? It, exactly. Page um, 238, uh, uh, paragraph heading, the fag bus rolls in. Imagine, if you would, a tour bus, you know, like the ones rock stars and rappers have. Hold the image in your mind. A beautiful, sleek, steel beast coated in black. Only the picture on the side isn't of a singer or a supermodel. It's a giant picture of my face staring directly at you, besides giant bold text that reads, Dangerous Faggot Tour. Well, the good thing is, you don't have to imagine it because it's real. You can see a picture of it on the insert. Go on, take a look, treat yourself. Oh my god! I, I hope I. Th this is so wrong, but I kind of hope that that thing gets tagged by gang graffiti. 
I, I know that I'm a bad person for thinking it, but <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll own it. <laughs> wow, yeah, God, just when you think it got the worst it could possibly get, there, there's. <sighs> Wow, where do we start with the bad? <laughs> yeah, he, he's talking about cutting him or, or thinking about cutting himself when he was a teenager. He says, obviously, I ne never did it because I always knew I was too beautiful to spoil like that. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> link will be on the show notes. Like I said, feel free to tear this apart because everybody else is. Uh, so he's just, you know, loads of fun. I, I mean, the guy is, his 15 minutes were up quite a long time ago and this unfortunately, uh, extends them to a certain extent, but, uh, but in a good way because man, does he look like an idiot? How, how did he become a thing? Was he like a YouTube you like, know, vlogger? Like, like how did, how did... <laughs> It's sort of like the Kardashians, right? Like, where the hell did he come from? And why do we care? Um, he had something... Okay, according to uh, Google, Milo Yiannopoulos is a British political commentator, publisher, celebrity, blogger, journalist, and author. He is a former senior editor for Breitbart News. He describes oh. himself as a, quote, cultural libertarian, end quote. Ugh. All right, well... Yeah. I, I... <laughs> so so let's um let, let's shift gears here, which is <laughs> sad news, but but also it it's hopefully at least a little bit empowering. Is that uh, Rosemary had died uh, yeah. a few days ago, and um, uh, if you don't remember who this uh, who this actress is, okay, so she started off as she was called Baby Rosemary, and she was actually started she actually started off as a singer, and she was hired by Bugsy Siegel, the the mobster, okay. And uh, so she had a she had a very long showbiz career, and she was tapped by Dick Van Dyke to be in the Dick Van Dyke Show, uh, which ran from 1961 to 1965. Her character was based on Imogene Coca. That I did not know. Uh, yeah, and so so she's. Um, so if you've if you've never seen the show, uh, the Dick Van Dyke Show is uh, groundbreaking because uh, the main character, the protagonist, had a life both at home and at work. Whereas what you used to see, like um, Ozzie and Harriet, for example, uh, you knew that that Ozzie had a job, but you had no idea what he did. You never saw him go there. You never saw his work friends or anything like that. So in uh, in the Dick Van Dyke show, he's got his work friends. He's got his neighbors who are his friends. So there there's lots of people uh, in in his orbit, and she's one of them so uh, and they are comedy writers for the alan brady show so there's her so she plays sally rogers um maury amsterdam who plays um buddy and uh, buddy sorrell uh and dick van dyke who's um and his character's name is rob petrie the three of them are the writers for the show sally doesn't do their typing doesn't get their coffee doesn't get their their dry cleaning She's not married, although she may, she's rather man-crazy. She is looking for a husband. She presumably lives somewhere with, you know, and, you know, on her own. She pays her own bills, buys her own things, has her own life in 1965. 
That's just amazing. Like I, I, and you know, I was thinking too as you were talking that, you know, another feminist icon, Mary Tyler Moore, also came out of that show. Um, I, I don't yes. think that she was. I, I, I can't really remember. It's been a long time since I've seen the Dick Van Dyke show, so I'm not really sure about her character as Laura Petrie. Uh, but when you know the Dick Van Dyke show ended, um, eventually, uh, what was it, sixty nine, seventy? The Mary Tyler Moore show started. Um, you know, she she was a single woman uh, who had her own life, paid her own bills, had her own job, that kind of thing. And and so uh, just that this show just gave birth to such icons of feminism is just amazing. Hey, consider consider Sally Rogers. Um, she's before. Uh, Mary Richards, Mary Tyler Moore. She's yep. before Anne Marie. That's uh, Marla Thomas's character in That Girl. Yep. And the thing about Anne Marie is that she was very defined by her relationship with her parents and with her with her fiance. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So uh, where, where Sally was single and maybe looking for some companionship, but she was just fine without them. She's also an older woman. That's the other thing. Uh, Mary's still Mary's thirty, as she says so in the um, in the pilot, because uh, because Lou Grant actually asks her that he shouldn't, but but he does ask her that, and she does answer. Uh, Anne Marie certainly is was was super young. Sally wasn't, and so here is a not attractive woman also making it on her own. Yeah, just very amazing and very different. And it's again, it's been a long time since I've seen the Dick Van Dyke show, but I don't really recall her being the butt of jokes about that for too often. I think, if at all, in general, uh, she may have been the butt of a few jokes of um, you know, like uh, I'm like her being man crazy, which is sort of understandable that they would make the, those the jokes because consider the time frame, right? But you know, at the same time, though, like I mean, I'm I'm feeling that I'm really relating to Sally Rogers here in that you know I am very single. I would like some companionship, but I'm not going to compromise. Like like you know, it, it's you you can come along for the ride, my ride, kind of a thing. And if I and and I make jokes at my own expense about like you know chasing boys or whatever. You know, <laughs> um, so it's um kind of relatable i i i feel it would be more devaluing if other people who were not in my inner circle uh made those kind of remarks so again it's something that i would have to watch the show again and and you know see see it contextually um but again like you said too for for the early to mid 60s very progressive uh, according to IMDb, so I'm, I'm looking up the uh, you know famous you know interesting quotes from from Sally Rogers. So so here's the scenario: um, there, Sally, Buddy, Rob, and Laura are staying in a haunted cabin, and all four of them are in the same bed because they're scared of the ghost. So Rob Petrie says, "It's been over two hours. Nothing strange or unusual has happened." And Rogers and Sally responds, "Oh really? What do you call four grown people sleeping in the same bed with their clothes on?" <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I, I gotta tell you, like, I do remember watching uh, Dick Van Dyke reruns when I was a little kid. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm what I call a syndication baby. I feel like I uh, was here just in time for television's second golden age in which all of these great shows were part of um, after school and weekend programming while I was growing up. And uh, it, it's also a golden age because the game shows back then were awesome uh, throughout the 70s. So I actually first encountered Rosemary um, on Hollywood Squares. She was a regular staple on that show. Yes. And she, she was just one of those characters like Paul Lind that you, you just watched it because she was one of those people that you wanted to see what she was going to say next. Yes, yes, exactly. And, uh, and and yes, she was a staple of uh, Hollywood Squares, just like Paul Lynn, you know, and very similar uh, that, you know, they, they had very similar roles on the show where they were, uh, they were the wisecracking people. Yeah, so and and their counterparts on Match Game were Brett and Charles, right? Like you know, yes, yes. You, you watched Match Game for Brett and Charles and 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 and, and Richard Dawson. And in fact, if you were on the show, if you wanted to win, you picked Richard. You know, um, so so this was very much um, influential on me growing up. Uh, the sense of humor that I developed uh, watching those kinds of shows. Also, though, uh, people who know me also know that I'm kind of a super fan of the monkeys. And uh, two of my favorite episodes, uh, Rosemary guest starred on. So <laughs> she's made a contribution to one of my all time favorite television shows outside of anything sci fi or fantasy. So she's been kind of this big part of the things that I love the most. She had a career stretching 90 years, according to IMDb. Her debut was at her, as herself in a Vitaphone musical short that appeared on the bill with the jazz singer at, it, at its premiere in 1927. Wow. That's, that's just so amazing. That, that's, that is the entire... Uh, that, that, that's beyond television. It's, 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 that, that's talkies to now. That, that's everything. That's amazing. So, so yeah, yeah we, we, we obviously lost a lot when we lost Rosemary. Um, and I, I, I definitely am going to be looking more into her career, especially now that we've had this conversation about her contributions to feminism. And uh, I, I just think that she's so darn interesting. Certainly, and, and man, the things you must have seen. So, uh, more news. Season four of Black Mirror started on December 29th. Have you been watching this? Oh, God. So, I, I binged it yesterday instead of working on syllabi. <laughs> and, and, and so, well, it's okay. So, seasons of Black Mirror are pretty short. I, I didn't count episodes, but I kind of feel like this one might be a little bit shorter than the other ones. But, God, it just makes up for it in quality. So, yeah, I've, I've watched the entire season yesterday. <laughs> so yeah so coming up next month man it is a good time to be a fan oh my god yeah so we've got the x-files coming on january 3rd the truth is out there and we're about to find out what it is <laughs> where it is um and if you don't recall and how could you not recall uh season 10 ended two years ago with a heck of a cliffhanger so we finally get to see that resolved and i am so excited 
Yay. And on the 7th, so only a few days later, Discovery returns for the second chapter of uh, the first season. And I can't wait for that either. It's uh, the the only thing that's really kept me going uh, and kept me from going completely crazy for more Star Trek Discovery is everything um, that's already been happening. What with The Last Jedi and and Black Mirror, that's kind of sustained me for a little while. So (laughs) uh, I, I will be so happy to get back into that Star Trek Discovery groove. And I don't know. I, I don't want this to come off terribly unprofessional, but uh, Jason Isaacs is my new Star Trek crush. <laughs> oh I'm sorry, goodness. Connor Trenier. <laughs> <laughs> hey, fangirl's going to be fangirls. Um, but no, I mean, I just, I love Jason Isaacs on that show. And Lorca is just so mysterious and complex. And I just, um, I, I can't wait for more of him. He's so different from any captain we've had yet. And, you know, going back to uh, what we were talking about with Luke Skywalker and how he's changed over the years, uh, and there's a very real possibility that Lorca started off as somebody who was uh, at least somewhat uh, idealistic, and uh, but life has changed him. Yeah, and I like uh, where they're going, too, with the possibility of the uh, PTSD character arc, um, but also kind of like how they keep you guessing, is it real, is it not? And and there's all this other stuff that he's maybe doing, is that real, or is it not, or is it just not what we think it is? Uh, what I find intriguing about him, though, is that he is a very good captain in that he knows how to motivate people, and, and he knows how to get them to to perform and uh, I, I, I don't know I just find it so darn interesting like I cannot wait to see what's going to happen next with him yeah exactly and uh, so uh, where do you think they are by the way the, the, for anybody who doesn't know the, the season the, the first half of the season ended with a cliffhanger where they were someplace where they could not locate where they were yeah, so um, one of the popular fan theories out there is that they're in the Mirror Universe, uh, which I think is possible. Um, they could be, you know, another quadrant, beta quadrant, delta quadrant, some other quadrant, gamma quadrant, I don't know. Um, it, it's just really hard to say. They could have even, uh, you know, Doctor Who'd themselves into a totally different time. They could have time traveled with that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see because uh, for for those of you who don't know, uh, they they got there partly because their chief engineer has been uh, cybernetically altered in order to. Uh, manipulate time and space in order to get the ship to go places faster than warp speed. And his eyes kind of changed at the end, and I was even flashing back to Gary Mitchell there. Oh my god, yes. Absolutely. You're not the only one who was thinking Gary Mitchell. So I wonder if they're somewhere near the, the galactic barrier, which is why Mitchell got his wacky eyes. So... You know, maybe there's that. Maybe there is a time difference, and if there is, then that then that should be kind of funky because, if particularly if they went ahead, uh, I think would be uh, even more remarkable than if they go back. Well, and the other thing too, another reason why I thought Gary Mitchell, and and, and again, you know, you can cut a trailer and a teaser to look like anything, but there's a short bit in in the teaser for for the second half of the season where you see uh, 
where you see him throw Dr. Culber, his partner, it, it gets kind of violent there in sickbay. And again, that just kind of recalls Gary Mitchell flexing his new psychic muscles and, 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 and testing his powers. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think they're at the barrier. I think we're going to find out in six days. Woo-hoo! Oh my God. I can't wait. I can't wait. So we'll probably be talking about discovery a lot the next episode to, as well. No doubt. And of course, if you have fan theories, please feel free to tell us what you think they are, including if, um, if suddenly everything's a dream and they're inside somebody's sl- snow globe. Yeah. And you know what? If, um, if, if, We'll be recording the next show uh, after the season premieres again. So if we get some new details and you get some new fan theories, by all means, send them in and maybe we'll read our favorite ones on the show. <laughs> we'll give them dramatic readings. So, uh, <laughs> so, so next, uh, so and next time you want to uh, you want to talk more about Last Jedi next time. Uh, yeah, I want to unpack some more things uh, from The Last Jedi. There's some things in there that I've been reading on the internet and just even in casual conversation with people that seemed pretty obvious to me from the film, but apparently they're confusing some people, so I'm going to unpack some of that. And uh, who knows, maybe more controversy will erupt and we can talk about that. But that was just something on my radar because we already talked so long about The Last Jedi today and there, there was just no way possible we could talk about it all. <laughs> there's uh there's more to come i'm sure so uh awesome so we will look forward to that and i know there'll be plenty more to discuss uh also because we you know jenny whitaker is now uh is now the doctor so that to be uh we can we can uh bring that up as well maybe we'll uh maybe we'll talk to uh talk to Ponkin again so um shall we wrap let's wrap let's wrap because i've got a turkey in the oven and I'm hoping uh, it had been sitting on the the counter for you know for a while, so hopefully it won't kill us. The, yeah, that would be bad if the turkey killed you. <laughs> I would have so, to host the show alone. They would have to listen to me talk by myself the whole time. That would so, be bad. So, so so hopefully we will not have killer turkey. Um, <laughs> but it, but if we do, then this uh, then this podcast has been my 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 testament to all of you. <laughs> So happy new year to everybody who listens and thank you for a great 2017. And just as you go into the new year, uh, don't put any undue pressure on yourself. Just uh, make good choices for you. Absolutely. Thank you uh, also for a wonderful 2017. Uh, and uh, we're looking forward to the future. Uh, and, um, and yeah, have a have a happy uh we're uh, and uh, keep us with you may the force be with you live long and prosper peace out don't let turkeys kill you take care <laughs> bye bye-bye music provided by invocation array send mail to hosts at semantic shenanigans.com follow us on twitter at two shenanigans that's the number not the word Two Shenanigans. On Facebook, you can find us at Semantic Shenanigans. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Semantic Shenanigans. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time right here on Semantic Shenanigans. <laughs>